Hey y'all, welcome to the Anxiety Warriors podcast. We are your hosts, Margo and Abby. We are friends, teachers, and storytellers, but above all, we're anxiety warriors on a mission to raise awareness and understanding about anxiety and mental health. You will hear honest, engaging, and joyful stories from us and many other anxiety warriors about living with anxiety. If you're seeking a space to laugh, connect, feel inspired and empowered, and learn valuable tips rooted in mindfulness and more, your warrior community is here for you. Join us as we navigate this journey of life together. Welcome, warriors. Yay. We are thrilled to be having our very first guest interview episode for our new season today. Woohoo! So excited. We spoke with the wonderful Lindsay Morlock. And before Abby hops into her recap, let me let you know a little bit about who Lindsay is. Lindsay Morlock is a gifted, intuitive breathwork healer, hand analyst, and inner child advocate. Lindsay recently left her corporate job as a chief operating officer and moved across the country to pursue her passion of being a spiritual entrepreneur. She believes that her ability to help people heal is grounded in assisting them to bridging the gap between the spiritual and practical realms in a grounded way. Through her work, Lindsay connects with her clients to truly understand what is ailing them while empowering them to realize that they already have everything they need within themselves to heal. She works with people around the globe to help them reconnect with their divine essence, alleviate their suffering, release blocks and limitations, and ultimately helps them to develop the most important relationship they will ever, ever have in their lives. The one they have with their self. Mm. All right. So Abby, let's hop into a recap of this convo. Yes. Um, I say this all the time, but like, I loved this convo so much. And I feel like, you know, if we weren't you know, trying to not have our episodes be five hours. We could have all kept talking. (laughs) Um, It was so fascinating. Um, And so again, it's just really hard to recap an amazing conversation that has so many different facets to it into a few sentences, but I'm going to do my best. So, you know, Lindsay, uh, much like Margot and I is an eighties and nineties baby. And she starts off by sharing how, you know, she was, um, learning to be a babysitter when she was 13 and she took this class for babysitting and how the advice given to her was that it was her job to anticipate every move that a kid would make so that she could keep the kids safe. And she took that advice and not only applied it to babysitting, but also applied it to basically every other area of her life where she was always like calculating 10, 15 steps ahead, which in some ways was supportive to her, but also really not supportive to her. Um, She shares a bit about while in high school, while experiencing anxiety and depression, uh, it led her to binge eating uh, as a way of dealing with her anxiety and that the food was more like a friend that also led to a lot of shame afterwards. She shares now her relationship with anxiety and how what's really helped her is her ability to really feel her feelings and to acknowledge the emotions she's experiencing and companioning them rather than rejecting them and how that's led her to take risks and move cross country and follow her dreams for how she wants her life to be. Um, I, I can say this so many times. I just felt so connected to Lindsay. I so, so enjoyed her story. And, um, I could have kept us going for hours. It was just a really interesting, fascinating story. And, um, I just thank you, Lindsay, for joining our podcast and sharing with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She just, she just is a powerful speaker. She's, she shares very vulnerably, very honestly about some very, um, 
touchy subject matter. And with that in mind, we want to throw a little bit of a content warning at you all warriors that there is conversation surrounding physical and sexual trauma, as well as um, binge eating, as Abby mentioned in the recap. And so, you know, think about where you are right now in this moment. And if it's a good time, it feels good for you to keep listening, then obviously we hope that you do because this episode is just filled with so much light and inspiration, even despite all of that. Um, and just a lot of fun too. Of course, we have such a blast in our lightning round. Like we always, always do with all of our amazing warrior guests, but if that feels triggering and maybe you want to come back to this episode another time, we understand. Mm -hmm. All right, warriors, without further ado, here's the show. Welcome back warriors. Yay. We are so stoked to be joined by and a wonderful guest, our very first guest of the new year. Yeah. Season three, first guest. Woohoo! Her -hmm. name is Lindsay Morlock. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. Yay. We are really thrilled. Um, uh, you know, Abby mentioned that she knew you ahead of this. And so anyone that's a friend or a colleague or someone that knows Abby is obviously like someone that like, I want to connect with too. <laughs> and since even before we hit record, I was like, I'm vibing with this girl or this lady. Is it weird to say girl when you're a full grown adult? I don't know. No, I, I still like it. Yeah, me too. Okay, right. Bring me but back to my girl? youth. Yeah. yeah. Bring it back yeah. to the youth as, yeah. as often as we can. Right. All right, Lindsay. So, um, we're just going to dive right in. Talk to us a little bit about how anxiety has shown up in your life. Yeah. It's such a great question because as I was reflecting back to when it probably started, it absolutely started in childhood, but we didn't have the anxiety name for it. Right. It was like, Oh, you're a worrier. Stop overthinking. Right. It wasn't about my parents didn't use the word anxiety. And when I think about it, like I come from a long line of warriors. I mean, it has clearly, I think there's this interesting combination of it being a learned behavior of being passed passed down generation to generation and observing, right? How people around you are thinking and processing their worlds and adopting that behavior coupled with some biologic predisposition for, right, for anxiety. So for me, you know, as a kid, um, we were always taught to think through every consequence to keep ourselves really, really safe. I remember when I was taking this babysitting course, um, my mom made me take a babysitting course, you know, CPR, the whole nine at the local hospital. And I remember the advice she gave me at the time was it's your job to anticipate every move that kid makes so that you make sure that nothing happens to that kid and you keep that kid safe. And I remember thinking that it was such good advice in one regard, right? Cause I was gonna, I was committed to babysitting and I was going to keep these kids safe and I was going to be the best babysitter. But in hindsight, I realized I kind of applied that advice to every facet of my life. So living my life became a game of chess with like moves, anticipating counter moves. And so I got really good at projecting what people were going to do, what they were going to say. And I was already calculating my reaction to 10 moves uh, that they were going to make ahead of the game. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, adulthood kind of looking back that I'm like, this is not healthy, <laughs> not even a little bit. Right. And so as I think back to some of my experiences, you know, 
also when I was 13, the intersection here was that I experienced some physical and sexual trauma. And in that situation, right, I was rejected by some of my peers, meaning they didn't believe me or they minimized the situation. They didn't feel like it was a big deal. And so I was kind of left with this traumatic experience and a lack of empathy, a lack of being witnessed through the trauma. And so the way I dealt with that was not only to suppress all of my emotions about the situation, but I started um, looking for ways to self-soothe that weren't healthy. Mm. And so I, in high, by the time I got to high school, which was only like a year later after this incident, I started to um, binge eat. <clears throat> and with the binge eating, you know, I just remember anxiety for me, and I only know this in hindsight, but anxiety for me was this, um, almost this feeling in my body of like speed. I've never done drugs like that. Like, I don't actually know what it feels like to be on speed, but this is what I imagine it to be where it's like this adrenaline rush coursing through your body. And there was nothing that numbed that feeling for me. Uh, other than a crunching of food, of chips, of it was like there was something about the crunch that distracted my ears and kept me focused on like the pleasure that was coming from eating all of this food. And then the feeling stuffed in my body right. got rid of that like feeling of, of ick in my stomach, which is where a lot of times I would feel that anxiety. So it was this combination of all of these different things to really quell the fact that I didn't want to feel any of these things because I didn't feel like I could talk about them. Wow. Mm. Wow. I, I have like a hundred things I want to say. <laughs> um, I mean, the first is, um, you know, Margo and I are, are eighties and nineties babies. We were born early eighties and, um, too. same thing didn't have the words for it. Right. Um, for anxiety and, and, and I, I really appreciate that you shared how you view anxiety as both a learned behavior and a biological, um, you know, response predisposition and everything. And, and I, I, I just so agree with that in the sense that like when we're growing up, especially in the eighties and nineties, but also anyone growing up at any period, we're looking to the grownups. And if the grownups are always worrying, if the grownups are always, um, people pleasing, right. Which is a form of anxiety. The, the fawn response. If, 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 if grownups are always checking out, right. We don't know like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> This is anxiety, right? We just learned that's what you have to do if the grownups are always go, go, going, right? That's like the normal thing. And so I really appreciate you highlighting that piece about how part of anxiety is a learned behavior. Like we we take on what we see the grownups doing around us. Um, and I feel like we haven't like talked a lot about that on the on, on our podcast, just in general. We've talked about modeling and all that, but really how so much of it can be a learned behavior. Um, but I also really appreciate the babysitting story on so many levels, right? Like, yeah. first of all, you were like 13, right? And I started babysitting at like 11 and 12. And like, <laughs> nowadays, who else are like 11, 12, 13 year olds, like 
watch children like what that is a child right but in the <laughs> 80s and 90s it's like no let's teach a 13 year old cpr and keeping another child safe right like it's like to me that's mind-boggling now the pressures that were put on us and it was just totally normal to be a babysitter at 13 yeah um and and i i just really appreciate like how you shared the, those lessons you learned. And, and at the time, it's like, it's a huge responsibility to watch someone's child, yeah, right? And, and you applied that, well, okay, if I'm keeping this child safe, well, obviously this is good a good lesson to overthink everything 10 steps for the rest of my life too. And I just can't, or like other areas of my life, I can't even, I can, I can, and can't imagine like, just the, the energy and the bandwidth it takes up in your mind to, to always be always thinking 10 steps ahead for everything. Yeah. And it's interesting because it became my superpower in a way where, you know, people would affirm me for it. You're Mm -hmm. so strategic. You anticipate these moves and consequences. And so in my roles, I worked in higher education for many years as a student affairs professional and working with student activities, right? So we're doing event planning. We're coordinating student activities literally after hours, right? On campus, I was a chief operating officer. So my job quite literally was to anticipate everything that could go wrong and fix it before it even became a problem, right? Mm -hmm. How do you improve efficiency? So the thing that was literally driving adrenaline in my body was also being affirmed positively as, as a, you know, as as something that I could really bill and sell myself on, but yet it never felt good in my body. And I always remember, you know, I read something by Brene Brown at one point that was people with anxiety do one of two things. They can over-function or they can under-function. And I feel like I always erred on the over-functioning side of the equation. And so even though this negative thing was driving the behavior, it was, it was a, a union stamp honestly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's like, that's the thing that's like so fascinating about behavior and about anxiety in general. It's like it manifests in all these different ways on the outside. We might just seem like this super high functioning, get shit done yep. type of person. Right. But on the inside, it's like, we like, just no one has any idea the amount of like stress and suffering we're going, you know, we're experiencing. Yeah. Um, I do also just want to hit on what, what you shared in regards to like the physical and sexual trauma, like, first of all, being brave enough to share that in high school. Right. And then being rejected by your peers sounds just, I mean, horrible. I mean, when you shared that part, like it was heartbreaking to hear that, right. Like you're going through something and then you share with your peers and, and they're telling you it's not true or, or whatever they yeah. did say there. And that, you know, I just, I just want to thank you for your bravery and sharing it right now. Right. Um, and also just like acknowledge that to be in high school and share something like that is really super brave. And it just sucks how kids aren't taught how to, 
you know, respond when people are opening up about something like that, at least in the eighties and the Mm nineties. Yeah. Especially when we're driven so much by fear, right. And your peer group is so important. Like losing a friend feels like the end of the world. So not only are you experiencing this, you know, trauma, but on top of it, now I was concerned that I was going to lose all of my friends if I said anything about what had happened. Right. And that really informed the rest of my high school experience in a way too, because mm-hmm. I think the way the anxiety started showing up was I just need to do whatever I need to do to avoid any pain. And then I can keep myself really, really safe. So anxiety became a defense mechanism. Not only did it create all of these distractions and, but it totally disconnected me from my body, which I didn't want to be in anyway, given what mm-hmm. had happened. And then it allowed me to get really good about being in my head so that I could keep myself really, really safe, even though that's not true, right? Like that's not how we keep ourselves safe as a, as a kid, you don't know any different, but that was, that was the defense. I think that what's interesting to me about so much of what you've shared so far, which I obviously want to echo Abby's words of how deeply brave it is to have shared as a adolescent, like a really young adolescent with people that at the, in your young brain, you thought you could trust right with this information to at the very minimum believe you. And when you said that they didn't believe you, that was, I think that was part of what you said. That was very triggering to me too. It's just like, anytime that any of us throughout any part of our life, right. We say something, we share how we feel, we share an experience and to not be believed is probably in some ways, just as painful as the experience itself. And I'm I'm not trying to diminish exactly what you went through physically, you know, emotionally, traumatically, obviously, but, and then to have to relive it in that same way, when you're trying, when you have the strength to share and people are not accepting of it, how much more painful and isolating that must have felt. So I just want to echo that. But also what I feel like I heard throughout was this sense of control that you either felt like you needed to have learned in that babysitting course, which again, like I definitely started babysitting before I was 10. Like I was watching my neighbor's kids before I would, you know, and it was like, I was a solid, stable, responsible child, but still a child nonetheless. And so it's like, it's wild. (laughs) Like, like you both have mentioned so far that any of us were supervising infants and toddlers and, you know, kids under five and their most foundational part of their life. We're just, <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and make sure they don't die or anything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could barely, you know, down on one, one by myself and have a coherent conversation, but sure. I'm going to give CPR to your baby. Yep. Yeah, yep, totally. Totally. <laughs> um, right. But it's just like, I, I feel like what I kept hearing throughout was just like control was sort of like the best part about it. And also the worst part about it. It's like, your control has been affirmed. You mentioned it several times. Mm -hmm. And so you feel like, yes. Okay. Thank you. Anxiety. You've made me overthink and overreact and over question and look 20 steps down the road, everything. And that's why I'm able to be the best at my job and the best person and friend and daughter and whatever. But it's also what's, you know, kept me feeling this anxiety. It's kept me trapped in like not wanting to be in my physical body. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Because it's, it all just feels like so much. So I, I feel like I'd love to hear more. Please share more about how um, you feel like maybe the element of control either played into your situation as a as somebody who was a binge eater at the time um, mm-hmm. and, and how 
just if you can connect that bridge a little bit more, if it, if there's a bridge to connect with, if you think like about control and did that play a hand in, in your binging? It totally did. And I think what's so interesting about being a binge eater is, right, so I was in control of my entire life with the exception of binge eating. That was the place that I was totally out of control. And so, you know, in school, I was, um, with the exception of one marking period when, when my emotions and everything kind of came to an head and everything tanked. I was close to a straight A student, not perfect, but pretty close. And I would strive for that, right? Like I felt like if I worked hard, if I got good enough grades, I had a lot of, you know, accolades and recognition in terms of awards or different things at school. I was overly, I think I got like most involved student in the yearbook, you know, superlatives at at the end of my senior year, right? So just to paint a picture of like, I kept doing all of these things to prove that I was enough because not feeling like I was enough and avoiding that feeling was what I think drove my anxiety. So if I can just stay in control and do all of the things to prove that I am enough, then this thing that happened to me, like then it doesn't hold so much weight, or at least I thought, right? Mm. And so the the piece of this was like, so on the outside, I had it all together. Nobody in a million years would really have suspected that anything was wrong. You know, there were a few, you know, there was one teacher in particular, I remember who just got me Mm. and he knew that there was like something in there that I wasn't saying. And so he was such a support, but I was like, without saying anything, I can really, I feel so seen by this person. And yet he gave me the space to do or be how I needed to be in a very boundaried way, a very appropriate way and a way that allowed me to feel really safe in building a relationship to start sharing some things. Right. So that was helpful, but I'm on a tangent, but the binge eating was like what I did behind closed doors in private, you know, and it was one of those things where I remember my mom used to say when I was growing up, like after dinner, like the kitchen is closed, right. Meaning get out of the kitchen stop eating, stop picking at different things. Like the kitchen light goes off and there was a a door to our basement that was right next to the kitchen. So I used to sneak into the kitchen after it was closed and I would grab whatever I could grab from the the cabinet. I would like tiptoe in. So my parents who were sitting watching TV in the next room, like weren't hearing me. They probably totally knew what was going on because my mom knew everything, but I would grab the food and I would go downstairs. And I would eat as much as I could eat because that was like, that was, that was my vice. It was like, nobody knows what I'm doing. And this is my moment to just let go of control and the dopamine hit in hindsight, right. Of that. I was getting from eating the food was giving me this feeling, this moment, momentary relief. from the anxiety. It was giving me the hit of like, you are safe in the world because you're not feeling bad in your body in this moment. This food tastes really good. And it was, it was a a companion food became my friend and it always showed up for me. It was always there. Mm. Right. And so that just became a really, initially it was just like a bad habit. 
right? But then it was one of those things where I would start burying the evidence in the garbage. You know, recently I was talking to my sister about this and she, she was blaming my dad. She's like, I used to empty that garbage and I saw all the evidence. And I just used to think like, what is dad eating down here? And it was not my dad. It was me trying to bury the evidence thinking nobody, nobody was paying attention to it. Right. So even in the binge eating, there was a lot of control in terms of trying to hide all of the things that felt so wrong with me. But at the time, right. Growing up in the eighties and nineties, binge eating wasn't a thing. If you weren't anorexic or bulimic, you didn't have a real eating disorder. So there also wasn't any kind of support for, or even a label at that point to be able to say, this is a real thing and I need help. And so what was interesting for me, it was, it became just another way that I was invalidated in my pain. Right. So it was like here I had been rejected and not witnessed or seen for this trauma that happened. Now I have this other problem that's presented and this isn't even real. This is just an issue of you have no self-control. That's what this is about. Right. So it wasn't until many, many years later that I could actually get help for it because there was more awareness and a strategy and approach in therapy to be able to say like, okay, no, there's, there's things that can actually help you. And this is a real thing. It's not in your head, but when a lot of, you know, when you're looking outside of yourself for answers and I was reading books, I was reading, you know, talking to different people and I couldn't find myself in anybody's story. So I was like, this is, there's just something wrong with me. This isn't real. Like there's just something wrong. Oh, oh. can I I mean, what, what were the messages that you were receiving from others? then at that point, like you mentioned like, Oh, like your mom knew everything. Like, were there people in your life through that, like the thick of it that you spoke to about it? I mean, I know you kind of said like you were hiding it, but then you also alluded to, but I feel like they might've known what I was doing. So like, were you receiving actual messages from the adults in in your world or or the people in your world? Or were they, was it all kind of brushed under the rug? Like, I I guess I'm just wondering how how you arrived at, you know, at the message that you were receiving from the outside, you know, whoever it was. It's interesting. I went to Weight Watchers for the first time when I was 13. So that was the first time that I, and and I'm sure my mom brought me to the meeting because a doctor probably said to her, she's overweight. You need to, you know, get this under control, you know, something to that effect. And so I remember going to these Weight Watchers meetings. So I literally, um, that that's your kind of formative years. That's when I, you know, learn how to cook a friend of mine. And I joke all the time now that like, I don't know how to cook because when I was growing up, I was always on a diet. So I never cooked with butter. I never cooked with oil. I never like none of the food I ever ate had any flavor either. Right. Because that was right. How you did it back then. It was just right. Cutting calories, cutting fat, like all the things. So I, you know, it's not, you know, I think my mother was very sensitive to how I would feel about my weight. And I think she did try very hard to make sure that I wasn't internalizing, like that there was something wrong with me, but there was no way to be in Weight Watchers and being the only 13 year old in the entire meeting and not feel like there's something wrong with you. 
right? When I look around at all of my peers, it was always very clear to me that I was heavy and they were not, right? And there was not this, there was some awareness for me that like I was eating all of this food and that was going to make me gain weight. But there also, I didn't have the, like the nutritional wherewithal to really understand how any of that was, was impacting me. So I just knew that my waistline kept growing that my peers, right. were not in the same, the vast majority anyway, we're not in the same position. So again, it was more of this internalized shame mm. of like constantly not measuring up. Right. And so I knew back to the control, it's like, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be the thinnest person in school. I wasn't going to be, you know, like all of those things, but I could work really hard to try to overcompensate for it. I could be really involved to try to show up in that way. I was a really good athlete. So like that really supported me. And, but I did receive messages being an athlete, um, around like, you know, feeling, uh, all my peers could just run four miles without any training. So I was a really good lacrosse player. I made the varsity team my freshman year. I was a starter my freshman year. And by sophomore year, I quit because I couldn't take it anymore. And I think of the majority of people feel like I quit because having to do with the coach, something with the coach, but it wasn't true. That was the rumor, but it wasn't true. The reason I quit was because all of my peers could run four miles without a hair out of place. And I couldn't even run the first 10 minutes because no one told me that there was like, you can train to work up to these things. So I just always felt like I'm all, you know, everybody else can just do these things, but there was no like couch to 5k program. There was no, you know, none of that existed then. So I just, it was one more way that I'm like, I am just not like any of these people. And I couldn't take the shame of being, you know, like, oh, everybody can run this four mile run with, and you're, I would be, everybody would have gone home already by the time I got there and came back. So instead I just removed myself. I wouldn't even put myself in situations where I would have experiences where I would potentially fail. Mm. So I think the message is, it's like, it's not that anything, like even the kitchen is closed, right? Like, I think that was my mom's way of trying to very gently be like, don't, don't keep eating. Like she was genuinely trying to help, but you, you know, I'm pretty much a rule follower, but that was all, that was the only rule I could never stick to. So even the, like, it's like, right. I have these cravings and these urges to binge and the kitchen is closed. So now this is wrong too, right? It was just wrong on so Mm -hmm. many levels. And it was a cycle of shame that just perpetuated itself. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. Like the, the, the first thing I just want to say is like, thank you right? For sharing the story, because I mean, you hit it on the head when we grew up, we weren't hearing any of these stories. And I think a lot of people can relate to not seeing themselves in other people's stories and just thinking what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thanking you because I know that people listening to this can hear themselves in your story. I hear myself in, in, in parts of your story, you know? And so I just, you know, I want to thank you for that and acknowledge that your story, I'm sure, helps other people feel less alone. And, you know, it never 
it never, like, I never realized like this, I'm having the aha moment of like in the eighties and nineties, like anorexia was in your face. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember they would do these like 2020 or whatever those, you know, nightly shows were. And they would like do like these stories on these people with anorexia. Right. And, and they would show their bodies, right. To like, yes, scare you away from anorexia. Like that's a thing. Right. But that's a different story. Um, and then they would talk about bulimia, which is the other eating disorder. Right. And that was like the narrative. And, 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 and so when you're sharing like, right, no one was just talking about binge eating, right? Like there was none of that there. And, and I didn't even realize that until this moment, like, and so what are the stories for the people that are, are dealing with binge eating, right? And they're not in the story. They're not, they're, no one's talking about it in any way, right? And the isolation in that. Yeah. And I, cause I think too, a lot of people would say, oh, you're just emotionally eating. Yeah. It's not binge eating, it's emotional eating. But when, when you're really a binge eater, you are consuming an inordinate amount of calories in basically a three hour window. And so there is a, there's a concentrated period of time that you're taking in way too much food for your body. And some people are eating to the point where then they do have to go make themselves purge because it's too, it's physically like a barrier. Like it, they have to get rid of what yeah. the, the damaged and like the pain that they feel. So it can turn, it was like bulimic. You were only bulimic if you were eating to that point, but bulimics, um, they, they are eating. It's like a different, it's, it's still a different disorder in yeah. a way, right? Like yeah. they're doing it for different reasons. And so, yeah. And I remember those 2020, yeah. uh, uh, segments that you're talking about. And I remember like desiring to be anorexic. Like I was like, it would be socially acceptable right. for me to be anorexic where it's not socially acceptable for me to be overweight. Right. And so, and that's the other thing, right? So there was so much, it was almost like not, I don't want to diminish anyone who's anorexic and, no, and no. the impact of that disease. And the, on the binge eating side of things, it was like, there was so much more shame around, um, the binge eating because of all the shame around being overweight right. in our society. Right. 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 Yeah. And that, you know, that's like the last thing I want to say about this part is in, in the story you shared about like the eating, the grabbing, the snacks, you know, then the hiding the waste and stuff. But, but you said like food was a friend, it was a companion. Right. And you talked about like the crunch, which sounds like it would bring you into that present moment and you would feel the joy. And, mm -hmm. and so I just heard this this you you say cycle of shame, but also this like cycle of like self care for a moment, right? Like you're, yeah, you're it was self soothing, yeah. yeah. And then the shame, and it just really makes me sad about just how shame is in our society in general, right? Because without the shame, what might have happened, right? May, like without the having mm -hmm. to hide it, what might have happened? And and I, I apply that just in general. Like if we all walked around with a little less shame what might change in our lives. Right. And so when you were just sharing that part, it just, it made me really sad for, for that girl who knew how to find something that was soothing, but also ended in shame and hiding. Right. And, and yeah. I, I, I don't have much more to say except for that. I just, it evoked a lot of emotion. Yeah. Um, same. And I feel like too, there's not we were, we received all of us, especially us girls, girls who were raised at that time, um, 
a lot of messages, messaging, messaging everywhere, but not a lot of direct communication from trusted people, right? Direct communication about Mm -hmm. things like nutrition, things like, you know, the fact that all bodies are different, the fact that everyone, you know, like, I mean, there was just, there wasn't enough, like, I feel like so many of our previous generations too, just like, don't say the quiet part out loud. Don't say the thing. Let's just send the messages out or slip that pamphlet under the door. And it's just like, children need conversations. They need actual dialogue with their parents, with, you know, their school counselors, (laughs) teachers, right? Whoever. And it's just, that's where a lot of the sadness lands for me. And, And I felt a lot of that as a kid too, not about this in particular, but about other things. It was like, we were just given these blanket umbrella messages as young girls or boys or, you know, just young children at that time, growing up in that time and didn't have a lot of, there was no dialogue. It was just, your kids will figure it out. Your kids are resilient there, you know, and it's just like, this is why we have so much internalized, you know, trauma that we're dealing with over the forever because so much could have been addressed in different, more direct and empathetic ways in that pivotal time in our lives. So yeah, I just want to thank you again for all of that extremely powerful storytelling. Um, like Abby said, I know that our warriors are going to, whether they have experience with these, these things that have to do with anxiety or have a very different story than you, that they're going to spend some time in reflection about it all. I, that I'm for sure. Um, so Lindsay, please talk to us a little bit about how anxiety kind of shows up either nowadays or in general, like in your mind and body, maybe you could focus maybe a little bit more on what's going on with you more recently or in the past decade, um, since we spent a lot of time talking about childhood and and your adolescence. So like, are there some ways that anxiety kind of shows up in you more recently, physically or emotionally? Yeah. So I would say the last probably like five to seven years has been when I've I dove into more of the healing work, right? Where I decided I was going to go to therapy to address the binge eating head on. And, um, I went to someone who specialized specifically in eating disorders. And that was a game changer because it is different. And, um, engaging, they put me through a group program or encouraged me rather to go to this group program, which was around dialectic behavioral therapy. And that was amazing because I remember my therapist saying to me, once she started introducing dialectic, uh, you know, modalities to her patients, she really started to see behaviors change. And I was blown away by this concept of you could be anxious and happy. Like it wasn't a this or that, that you could experience more than one thing at the same time. And like, that was normal. So I felt like I had a crash course on, um, you know, feelings and emotions. I remember her telling me about this, like conveyor belt of garbage thoughts and like watching these thoughts falling off the conveyor belt into this garbage can, you know? And so that was the kind of the beginning of like emotional, um, management in a way and understanding that this anxiety is just covering up a whole bunch of emotions that I am not dealing with. And so 
after going through that for about three years, I also was working with a spiritual coach. So I'm very spiritual and I had a huge awakening as part of my, my healing process. And so I was also working with a spiritual coach at the time. And I realized that I was making more progress with my spiritual coach than I was with therapy. And the reason for that is because therapy was keeping me in my mind about the problems. And so I would go to therapy. My therapist was wonderful. And I would always feel better when I left her office, but I kept talking about the same things over and over again. And I was like, I know what the problems are. I don't need to keep talking about them. I need a freaking solution, you know? So what I realized was that as I pivoted and dove more into the spiritual work, things were actually getting better. And what I hated about the eating disorder recovery from a from a therapy perspective is I felt like I was white knuckling my way through the healing. Like you had to be disciplined and focused and you had to make like every time you were faced with an urge to binge, I either had to throw myself in the shower so that I couldn't actually access food or I needed to like go sit on my hands or, and it just felt like, you know, doing that once in a while was one thing, but it was so daunting to have to do that every single day. And I gave up multiple times. I was just like, fuck it. Like, I can't do this, you know? And my therapist will call it that. She's like, you got the fuck it's like, fuck it again. Fuck it. I'm like, right. I'm always in a fuck it cycle. Right. So with that in mind, I'm like, I, I need something else. And with, with, um, the spiritual work, I actually got a process for feeling my feelings. And when I'm talking about feeling your feelings, like most people in society are not feeling their feelings. They're thinking their feelings. So if you're thinking about how sad you are, if you're thinking about how mad you are, you're thinking your feelings, you are not feeling them. But when I learned how to like, where in the physical body, am I actually noticing the sensation of sadness? Am I noticing the sensation of anger and being able to use my breath to like breathe and release all of that out, I noticed the urge to eat just went away. So I didn't need to white knuckle my way through it. I just needed to feel my feelings. And so when I realized how powerful the breath was, I decided to go, I was, I had taken some of these like one-off work breath work workshops. And I just noticed I had these profound openings and I just felt so like Zen and aligned and good by the time I was done. And so eventually I was encouraged to go, you know, get certified in it, mostly because I was trying to help myself and deepen my own practice. And as a function of that, I decided to do this for others because it was so powerful. So I really use breath work now to really process my emotions. But the thing that I'm learning is that emotions are messages for us. They're meant to be noticed. And if we pay attention to the messages and we get the message, the emotions can clear. But by the time we're in that like anxious state, I've let fear and worry and set like all the things get away from me to the point where I'm one big ball of anxiety. And so it's just like the emotion is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because it's like, Hey, you gonna pay attention to me yet? Right. And so the minute I pay attention to it and give it the validation that it needs, get the message, like then it all dissipates. And I don't feel the need to soothe with some of these things like food or, you know, whatever I might've been doing at the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, everything, yes to everything, right? Like, yes to DBT. I am, I love DBT. I, I find I've only done CBT. Like when I went to therapy, 
but I've talked to so many people that have done DBT and I just love the idea of it. And it's a great introduction for anyone to, cause it offers mindfulness and, and emotional understanding. Right. And then yes mm -hmm. to coaching, right. Um, because coaching, coaching is not supposed to help you with the trauma piece. It's supposed to help you move forward in life. Right. And it sounds mm -hmm. like at, you know, when you had both of those, you saw the value in both, but you realize like, wait a second, I'm ready to stop talking about the past and really step forward into who I want to be, what I want to become. And I just, I, I love, I love hearing you talk about emotions. Like you're right. It's so easy to think emotions, right? Like that person said that thing to me and now I'm angry, you know? But to sit and feel your emotions is a very different experience. And, and I think for one, not everyone is, is, is educated on how to do that, right? Yep. And it can be really overwhelming and really scary when you've checked out of your body for how many years to then actually start to feel those feelings, you know, especially yep. the more unpleasant ones. Um, I, I also think that in our society, we're not given the message that it's okay to pause and, and, and feel how we're feeling. Right. Like so often when things occur, you know, it's like, oh, I can't, I can't deal with my emotions now. And then you're not going to deal with them later when you get home. Right. But so I love how you just talked about, like, you've learned these different breath work practices that have helped you. What I assume is both in the moment. And then you have a practice around it too. Um, Correct. And I just, I love that because I totally, I totally agree that like, if we all could just feel our feelings more, it helps change a lot of things that we're trying to change in our life. Well, and I think we've been trained throughout our lives to avoid pain yes. and negative emotions. They don't feel good, but the irony of this whole thing is that resisting our negative emotions is far worse and keeps us in that not good feeling place for far longer than if we were to just take a moment to be present with whatever is coming up, really validate our right to feel whatever it is that we need to feel so that it can, it can move through us in a wave. We can come back into a place of like feeling good and in a place of alignment very quickly. And we actually don't need to be in the suffering, but it's in our rejection of whatever it is that we're experiencing that doesn't allow us to move through the emotion. It doesn't allow any of it to change. And so if you think about it, like we're all walking around then with all of these emotions building up, building up, building up by the time people are like, so, so wounded by whatever that someone says hello the wrong way and they're freaking out on someone. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not that one interaction. It's that everybody's walking around as a pressure cooker if they're not addressing their emotions. And we've been taught that like, if, if we have an emotion, there's something wrong. And it's, it's for me, one of the biggest learnings I had is that every time I have an emotion to not say to myself, what's wrong, it's what's the message. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love so that. good. Yeah. It's <laughs> so good. I mean, I, I just love, I wrote down like verbatim, you said, feel your feelings, don't think your feelings. Mm -hmm. And that really lands for me. And while I mean, semantics are important to me. And so I just want to say that, like, I, for, for me personally, I need to first, for me, I associate the thinking with acknowledging the feeling, right? 
Now that's a very sticky place. You can spend too much time up here and not enough time asking yourself those important clarifying questions about where am I experiencing this pain, this, this trouble, this, whatever, is it physical? Is it emotional? Right. All the questions that we ask ourselves as mindfulness people, uh, people who practice mindfulness as teachers. Right. And so, um, but I really love the feel, uh, feel your feelings. Don't think it because it just, it was, a, it was a helpful reminder to me that I don't have to be stuck in the thinking in order to be able to get to the feeling. And so yeah, I think and to- I would take that and flip-flop it just for myself. And that's what I love when we talk to warriors about their journey and how they cope with their anxiety and their strategies. I love that I'm always able to take so much of what you all are doing and then realign it so it works for me, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the beautiful thing about the empowering nature of strategizing for your own journey is that we can share with each other, all the amazing ways that we've found that feel supportive and great and wonderful. And then take the little sprinklings at work and make it work for, for ourselves. Right. And I just, I'm, so I'm grateful to you for that. Just that phrasing really lands, but it's like, well, how can I take that? Right. And all our warriors listening, how can you take that thought and make it your own, make it something that feels good in your body that works for you. Um, and I just also love I kept visualizing, you know, when, and Abby and I think a lot in pictures. And so it was just like, when you were talking about how you were done with the fucking talking, you were just done with it. You needed something else. It's like, okay, where are the freaking solutions? I need something to actually yes. do that's going to help. This is no longer serving. And I'm just thinking about we're throwing spaghetti at a wall, just throw the spaghetti <laughs> waiting for something to fucking stick to the damn wall. And all that talking wasn't sticking. And so you instead, right, you, you changed the plan completely. And I just, I love the empowering nature of that. And just the visual, that was just my visual in my brain. So thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. Cause too, I think you're highlighting something that's really important. That is also, you know, these are habits that we form over many, many years. Right. And so there's something known as a negative payoff behavior. So even though we don't like what we're experiencing and we want to change it, we are getting something from it. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the negative payoff. It's negative because it's not a pleasant experience, but there is some sort of hit that we're getting from it. So it's this, this push pull experience too, of like, so desperately wanting to change, but also this fear back to control, right. Of like letting go because this is what we know. And what does life look like if we get rid of the thoughts and they're not in there to intercept and protect us from everything moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be, I want to validate for people. Like that's a really, the letting go of the habit is, is really challenging because we have to, um, recognize that it's doing something for us. Like for me, I think I was addicted to depressive thoughts. Like I, you know, I think, I think when I was a kid, right. I was the youngest of three. And I think as a kid, you know, I got attention if like something was wrong. Right. And so how does that translate as we get older? It's like, right. Something needs to be wrong to be seen or to get attention. And so back to this like original question of what I'm doing now too. It's like, I just quit my corporate job. I was a chief operating officer. I just quit my job, picked up, moved 2,500 miles across the country to live my dream as a spiritual entrepreneur in Sedona. But the, but the anxiety that that would have caused me in the past, right? Like I had to go through all of this healing in order to get myself to the point where I, I felt like, you know what, I'm no longer willing 
to allow myself to get attention from like these depressive thoughts. Like if I'm going to get attention, I want people to be like, how did you blow up your life? And how do I do that? Right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of, so I had to reframe the, the like payoff behavior and like get myself excited about where I was headed. Yeah. So good. This is a perfect segue into this next (laughs) question really is if you could go back in time and offer yourself Mm -hmm. a bit of advice, what would you say? that your emotions are not good or bad, right or wrong. They are intuitive messages from your soul and they need to be validated. Like really, like I cannot impart on people enough that when we are rejecting our emotions, we are rejecting a part of ourselves. And that is the point I think of our lives is how can we just come more and more into acceptance with whatever our experiences are in the moment. And so I wish I knew that like emotions weren't bad, that they were just there to give me a piece of feedback about my body, about my experience. And, um, And I think that would have, yeah, I think if I knew that about emotions, that would have been a game changer. I mean, just full body chills right now. Crazy. I wrote down intuitive messages from my soul. Like, Mm -hmm. oh man. Yes. Put that on a postcard (laughs) on my wall. (laughs) Send it to everyone, you know, Yeah. honestly, (laughs) Lindsay, you need that on a shirt girl. Yeah. I feel like I got to give my coach credit because this is coming from her when she channeled. So I love I've just it. learned from, I've just learned from an amazing oh, woman. So we it. all have mentors that yep, we can, yeah. I love that crediting to, to mm-hmm. your, to your, your coach. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. So final question before we get into some lightning round fun, what does being an anxiety warrior mean to you? You know, I think it's about, um, getting rid of this idea of perfection. And it's just continually building that muscle to show up, just like keep showing up. Because I think one of the things that our minds do when we're anxious is we can spiral into all of the reasons that prevent us from having experiences in our life. Right. And that can keep us really safe, but it also prevents us from doing some really cool things in the process. Right. And for me, right. I was always driven by fear of making mistakes, fear of rejection, right. Fear of failure. And that prevented me from, from experiencing a lot of different things. And so I think being a warrior, like that doing the work and showing up for yourself, that is the hard work. If, if it was easy, more people would be doing this and our world wouldn't look the way it looks. Right. So like improving yourself, like working on yourself and just keep showing up as messy and imperfect as it all looks like that's, that's being a warrior. Like just mm-hmm. keep showing up. Yes. 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 <laughs> showing up. Yes. Yeah. I love it. It's so beautiful. Thank yeah. you. So true. So true. Exactly. Yeah. All we need yeah. to do is keep, keep living, keep showing up. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Good. Okay. Well, that was, that was fun and all. <laughs> now <laughs> for the heading. anxiety portion of the show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you want to prove that you're a warrior, Lindsay, you got to get through the next. All right. I'm going to show up. Yeah. yeah. With us. Ready to show up. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is my favorite part of every interview. I mean, we, we joke about like, I love, we love hearing people's stories. We love learning about their strategies, like all the things that are meant to inspire and empower. But at the end of the day, I think I'm, we're, Abby and I are just giant children that are just looking for <laughs> people to play with. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so true. We are. We're looking we really are. <laughs> we just want friends. Yes. <laughs> so fun. Which is why we have three episodes about anxiety and adult friendships now. <laughs> we know where we are on this in this friendship game. All right. So it. Lindsay, are you ready for lightning round? <laughs> lightning. I love the sound effects. Yeah, I know. These are our professional stings. What are you talking about? <laughs> that wasn't us just now. We hit a button on our beep, 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 beep on the screen. We, and we hired this... really good money. We paid really good money and hired some experts for that. It was very oh. Elvis Duran. I'm not, it definitely was. Woo, Northeast reference, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Tri-state, New York, Jersey, Connecticut girls over here. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So Lindsay, Abby and I are going to go back and forth and ask you just a handful of fun, get to know you type questions. I know that you expressed some anxiety about it going into the recording, but we hope that, you know, you get down in the mud with us and play for just a few because anxiety is heavy and we like to sort of end with some fun, light, lightness. Yeah. Love it. Perfect. All right. Abby, I'll go, go first. <gasps> yeah. Ooh. All right. Yeah. So we're all around the same age, eighties and nineties babies. So let's start with the 90s. What is something you miss about the 90s? And what is something you don't miss about the 90s? I do not miss slap bracelets. <laughs> Those were so annoying. Painful. And they hurt. Like, why did anybody think slap bracelets were a good idea? <laughs> I mean, I think eventually they determined that they weren't and they were banned from schools, but like they were not when we were going through it. Yeah. So for one, and it. I'm definitely down for... Um, like <laughs> some like don't go chasing waterfalls music. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's gotta be the nineties music, right? Like, yes. you know, when the songs from the nineties, I don't love, I love the eighties music far more than the nineties, mm -hmm. but the nineties music just like takes me back to like a moment of like that dance we were at yeah. or how we were, you know what I mean? Like somebody's basement we were hanging out in and like, it just brings me back to that moment. Oh love yes. It. Love it. Yeah. That is well done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cheers <laughs> over here. That was a great answer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Love bracelets were terrible. They were. All right. Keeping <laughs> with this vein, talk to us, tell us if you had like a favorite childhood game. Or like, mm -hmm. maybe it's something that we either did in school around that time, or just like with friends, um, or could it be like a board game or something like that too. But like, what was your favorite childhood game? Okay. Favorite childhood game. So the first one that flashed to my mind, I feel like the favorite school game was heads down, thumbs up. Oh yeah. Do you remember that yes. when you had to like put your head down on the desk and like someone was going around the room, like duck, duck, goose, but with yes. your thumb. We called yes. it seven up. Yeah. Yeah. Seven seven up. Up. Yes. Yeah. Just remember heads down, thumbs up. Yes. And then, yeah. And then in terms of like actual games, I really like, I was a tomboy. So I was like always outside and I loved flashlight tag growing yes! up <laughs> with like the neighborhood kids. That was the best. Okay. I've never done flashlight that tag. anymore. Oh my God. Yeah. Flashlight tag and like capture the flag at night with flashlights. Those were like similar, but different, but I loved both those games. Yes or yes, ghosts in the graveyard. Like oh, that yes. was another, I that always was, was so freaked out by it, but I loved that. Yes. 
I even I love that one had too. my fifth grade birthday party. My mom owned a nursery school and it was next to a graveyard. Oh and my so gosh. We had oh these like grandiose ideas to play this, but we were all way too freaked out by the yeah. time it came. <laughs> of course, of course. You were like, we're yeah, brave. We we're going to play. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is, I miss this from the nineties. Where are these games? Right. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So what, what is something you would recommend someone do if they came to Sedona for a visit? Oh, Okay. Um, definitely do a pink Jeep tour because I, the broken arrow tour is one of my favorites. Um, it's super fun. They take you in an open air Jeep Wrangler. It's a great way to get on the land for any of your like Northeast people who know, like going down the shore in Sedona, they say you're going on the land. Right. So, um, but it is majestically beautiful here. And so I think whether you're, I've come here on spiritual retreats, there's like amazing practitioners who can help you with like healing or different things, but also just the hiking. There's nothing beats the hiking here. Cause everything here is like a 360 degree view. It's magical. It really is a beautiful place. I've yeah. only been once, but I got to get back out yeah. there. It's so yeah. beautiful yeah. there. It's gorgeous. I've, yeah. I've been once too. Now we're closer. We're I mean, me yeah. and you, Lindsay. So yeah, I know my husband and I will make a trip out there in the next year or so. So we'll be in touch. With nice. Us. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Maybe we do some kind of anxiety warriors retreat in Sedona. Yes. Ooh. That'd be fun. Right. Planting seeds, planting seeds. seeds. Yes. Planted. We planted. Okay. Uh, all right. If you had a 25th hour to your day, hmm. how would you spend it? But like every day has 25 hours now for you. Okay. This is a tough question. Yeah. Honestly, I think I, I'm really challenged at playing. Like this is my, I am really good at working. I'm really good at being serious, but I love, like I, there is a levity about me. So if I had that extra hour, like I really feel like I need to figure out how to play. And so I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know how to play yet, but that is what <laughs> I feel is needed in my life. So that's, I, I love think that. Yeah. Try to figure that out. Yeah. I love that. Like Improv beginner's class. mind about it. <laughs> no, don't do it. Which is also class. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's your next step is an improv class. <laughs> so funny. Find that it hour. probably would help me let go of control a little bit. No, no joke. That, yeah. that was like my spiritual practice for a bit was improv. Yeah. It really, I had to be like present in the moment, let go of control, be able to go with the flow right? Yeah. Give up trying to be funny and just be like present. And yeah. Anyway, these are all yeah. things I'm terrible at. Abby's and been trying I, to get me to go to improv for all the longest time. And, and you, play, like, no. you play, you yeah. play, you laugh, you almost pay your pay. I enjoy watching it for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> me too. I'll go yeah. to all the improv shows. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, final question. Okay. I'm just, I'm, I'm doing this all through a biased lens because like you, I lived in the Northeast. I moved to the West, right? Like just picked up and left. And so I like, I like hearing other people's stories when they do something like a huge brave act like that. So what was something like culturally you noticed different between living in Jersey and moving to Arizona? Okay. Where do I start? <clears throat> First of all, uh, the Northeast DMVs need to take their cue from Arizona because mm. I was in and out of the DMV in Arizona in 20 minutes what? with a new license registration oh and a God. new title. Like 
unbelievable. Whereas I think I was just in line for two hours. Three hour minimum. Forget it. Forget it. 20 minutes. I love it. Amazing DMV. But I would also say like, it is so, um, my experience out here, it's so strange. Like people don't show up when they say they're going to show up, like, especially like service providers or like, there's something called like Sedona time. Right. And so people are on kind of their own schedules and, um, but even like contractors or things I'm like, so I, ever since I got out here, I'm like, I want to be a contractor. I want to be a truck driver. Like I want to be all these things because it would be so easy to just make people happy because you don't have to do a whole lot to just like, all you have to do is show up, yes. you know? Yeah. So it's, and that would never, I just feel like that would never happen in the Northeast. No, I, I love that. I asked this question because <laughs> I love that you're saying that there are so many times where his, my husband is from Colorado, right? But I grew up in New York. And so like when stuff happens where a service provider has to happen or something, whatever, whatever it is, I'm like, how do these people even have a job? Like, yes. I, like they would not like have a business in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. But you see it too. Yeah. Yeah. And my last one would be mm. this whole like propane thing. Not that people don't have propane tanks in other parts of the country, but I have so taken for granted utility availability in the Northeast. I mean, Arizona has got water problems. There's, I mean, this whole filling up a gas tank thing has been a whole new education. Like, so yeah, I feel yeah. like those are the it, two totally different worlds. Not to mention when I changed my car insurance, I was talking to the woman on the phone and she says to, I said, you know, in New Jersey, like you still have to be mailed the insurance card. Like you can't even print it out online. They have to mail you the separate card. So anyway, I'm asking the woman on the phone, do I need to print it out? Do you mail it to me? She goes, oh honey, we're just so happy you even have insurance. You can just pull it up on your phone. I was like, okay, like where am I moving? You know, (laughs) that is, that is. That, that spikes my anxiety. Um, okay. Final, final question. If you could be in any existing movie, what character would you be and why? Hmm. Ooh, that is a good question. Honestly, I feel like I really relate to, um, eat, pray, love. And I feel like that, um, Julia Roberts, honestly, like in, in eat, pray, love, right. Where she's just like trying to find herself through all of these different experiences. And yeah, I think that's, that's the one that comes to mind. And you go to some right. awesome places. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. True. And Good the point. places the ending yeah. in Bali. I mean, that's Bali's yeah. been on the brain lately. So yeah. Um, spoiler alert. Just kidding. The movie's crazy. old. <laughs> <laughs> And the book oh. is even older. I remember right. that like was yeah. such a well-worn book of mine multiple times reading that. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right, Lindsay. Well, thank you so much for playing with us Yay. for a few to end our yeah, episode. Thank you. Before we have you share with our listeners, how they can connect with you, where they can find you online and social media and all that good stuff. Um, do you have a win of the week, big or small to share with us? Yeah. So, you know what? I recently launched a podcast of my own and I feel like I've been having sound issues. I've been having all these different things, but you know what? 
I'm showing up every week, imperfect as it may be. And that just feels like a win this week. I gotta, I gotta take that as Woo. the win. Just keep showing up, right? Yes. Yes. So true. Yes. Yeah. Highly one. recommend you all checking out the podcast called Guided. Well, you can, you can share all of it, Lindsay. Um, but yeah. it is definitely an awesome podcast and there is a lot to learn for sure. Um, but yeah, exactly. You just keep showing up, keep doing it. And the practicing with not it not being perfect is like also a huge win, right? Like yeah. the learning right. the letting go. go of control. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So share with our listeners how they can connect with you. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, the easiest way to connect with me is my website. So it's just lindsaymorlock.com and Lindsay with an A Y. Um, and then I do, I have this podcast guided with Lindsay Morlock, um, that I'm excited about. And, um, I do monthly breathwork circles for my group. So anybody who, you know, may have connected with the whole piece about using, you know, anxiety for, or using breathwork for, purposes of helping anxiety. Um, I do those circles once a month around the full moon to use the, the energies of the moon to help release all of the things that are ailing us. So, um, yeah. yeah. And I on Instagram, to to one of those. yeah, yes, please do. They're super fun, beautiful group of people that come and, um, just very, very supportive and really interesting experiences that people have. So I love connecting with people in that way. And then, it. yeah. And then I'm on, I am on Facebook, although I feel like I use Instagram more, but, um, at Lindsay underscore Morlock is my handle there. So amazing. All right, Lindsay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. It has been just so much fun, so inspiring and just a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Holy cannoli warriors. Yes. What to say? I mean, I'm just once again, just floored by the brave, inspiring people that are just like, sure, Margo and Abby, I want to talk to you for over an hour about this shit that I went through as a kid and my adolescence and my adulthood and be brave enough to say it all like on a platform where so many warriors get to hear it. It's just, it's mind boggling and warms my soul, like deep levels. It's just, yeah. And this episode was just like all the others in that way. I just feel like Lindsay has such a, um, power to her. Mm -hmm. There's something about the way that she speaks and how deeply connected she at least comes off. Right. That, that how, to me, I feel like watching her over zoom (laughs) obviously. And listening to her tell her story, it's, there's just like a inner power that radiates from her that I feel like she speaks with such clarity and authenticity and, um, vulnerability in ways that feel very disarming and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I just, I felt deeply connected to her story as she bravely shared today. Yeah. Same here. And, and I totally agree. It's like this, 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 this confidence and like acceptance and, and owning her story. Right. Like it just, I I know what you mean in that power. Right. right? When you said confidence, I was like, yes, that's the word. That is it. Yeah. hundred percent. I really, I mean, there's so many takeaways. Um, but you know, one of, one of like the huge takeaways for me in this conversation was, um, when she, when she was talking about like how, when we were like talking about emotions and how in the, in the unpleasant emotions, like we tend to avoid them, right? Like it's human nature. We're not taught how to sit with it and be with it and everything. And I was having this like 
side thought as she was talking about it. And then you and her were talking about emotions. Um, just about like how many, how many habits we build up just from like childhood in avoiding the present moment of emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. And she did mention habits too, as well, but like the, the takeaway is just like, how when we're like rejecting our negative emotions, right? We're also in that moment doing some habit that isn't necessarily supporting us, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, how do we catch the space before the rejection Mm. to actually be with that moment, even if it's just a moment, right? Because we do live busy lives, right? A lot of times when the big emotions happen, they're not when you're like sitting at home reading a book, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a good time. And and so to catch it before the rejection so that you can then make the choice yeah, to do something else with it and not reject it. And so that was like one of my like really big takeaways in that. I just, I love the whole emotions conversation. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I think part of it too is like the familiarity. It's like we attach, like you say, habits, right? And to, I always associate that with like, even if a habit is deeply troubling and uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like in the in the grand scheme, or if you were to look at it from like a bird's eye view or something and look down at yourself and say, that's not a healthy habit or that isn't being helpful or serving, mm-hmm. but it feels familiar. And so in that yes. it winds up feeling safe, even if it isn't going to offer us the safest of outcomes or inevitable feelings. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, that was a hundred percent I think my, my takeaway just in, in line with your own was just the entire conversation around emotions and how deeply she seems to be, um, tuned into her emotions. And I think that kind of leads into my first takeaway, which was just that I think I wrote it down. I have to flip to it. It was the feel your feelings. Don't think your feelings. Right. And, and I loved, I loved the simplicity of the statement and how it feels like something you could just put on a postcard or a post-it and like mm-hmm. have it be a nice reminder, which sometimes nice reminders that we can offer ourselves all the time can turn into habits. Right. Yeah. And so if I can practice remembering that phrase and making it my own, you know, that's some of the ways that I feel like I, I connected. It was just like, okay, I'm going to take what Lindsay said and make it into something that works for me too. Yeah. And just like the strategy surrounding breath work. And obviously that was a big game changer for me and my yoga and mindfulness journey, which was my first step into really offering myself tools and self-care for my anxiety way back when yeah. and having those things be practical. And so I think that, um, my other major takeaway is just how, um, you know, you said confident, I said powerful, and I want to just also add like attuned mm-hmm. Lindsay is Lindsay seems like the kind of person that really walks the walk, at least in this stage of her life. And that's part of the reason why she's in service of others to help others empower themselves to walk the walk and to move through the discomforting work that it may take in order to live more fulfilling, wonderful, rewarding lives. Um, and you know, I also love the, that emotions are intuitive messages from the soul. I just feel like I just want to write a bunch of postcards from, from Lindsay yes. and have them write, write them to myself. Yes. Yeah, I love that. that. that those postcards are my postcards from Lindsay. And then like just the messages, new business <laughs> idea, Lindsay. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. Yeah, um, exactly. No, I, I love that. I love that. Um, you know, the, the, I will say like for my final takeaway, um, 
It really, and I, I did talk about this on the pod, um, on the episode, it really struck me how she couldn't find her story in the narrative of our times in the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I just want like really like wonder how how often so many people felt alone when they couldn't hear their story through someone else's experience, lens, journey, and how isolating that is. And just how important it is to keep sharing our stories because there's more of a chance that someone will find it, right? Like we have the internet now. We didn't have that in the eighties and the nineties. It was just weird chat rooms where you said your age and your gender, like, you know, right. (laughs) Just cringe thinking about it. Yeah. No one was telling their stories then. And, and so, you know, it just, um, it's just like the, like we have our thoughts about technology and the internet and and all of that, but at the same time, it gives people the chance to hear their story through someone else so they know they're not alone. Um, and so that was just my other takeaway is like, especially for all of us that were born in the 80s and 90s and before, like the the messages and the stories and the narratives we got when we felt alone and felt like what's wrong with us and how there's an opportunity now for all the younger generations to hopefully hear their story through someone else. So they know they're not alone. They know there's nothing wrong with them, you know? And so that was like my other takeaway is just how much that stuck and how important it is to see yourself in someone else, to hear your story in someone else's story. Yeah. Just the representation of storytelling. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I just, I'd recently shared to our Instagram page, telling your story helps others heal, right. Or has the power to do so. So yes, thank you so much, Lindsay. And thank you warriors for listening and being with us here for our first interview of season three. We love you so much. If you'd like to connect with us for any reason, you can join us over on Instagram. We're at anxiety warriors podcast, or you can feel free to shoot us an email at anxiety warriors podcast at gmail.com to shout out your wins of the week, share topic ideas with us. Or if you think you'd be a great fit as a guest on our show, let's connect, throw us an email, throw us a DM and let's get your story told here on our platform for all the warrior listeners to enjoy and feel inspired by. And please take two seconds and smash that five-star rating on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in right now, like, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All of our episodes are uploaded for you all over there and take a moment and jump into our show notes and click our podcast merch store link. Our threadless shop is just chock filled with so many kick-ass, um, idea, uh, options for you, yes. mugs and t-shirts and journals. And I mean, just like you name the product and they pretty much have it yoga mats. Mm-hmm. And we have some great logos for you to put that stuff on over there. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you all so much for going on this journey with us. We are so grateful that we get to do this with you all every week till next time. <laughs>